So, Cesar, welcome to Intersection Podcast. It's a pleasure to have you. Yeah, and, thank you. Uh, we've been looking forward to this conversation with you and touching different topics as, as we discuss uh, offline. So the way we do it, I will let you introduce yourself. Tell us a little bit about you, where you come from, what you do, where you are. And uh, we take it from there and we let the conversation, you know, flow. Sounds good. So Sounds go ahead. good. So it's your yeah. Show. So my name is Ruiz. Um, I, I currently live in, in New Jersey, right outside of the, uh, the big city. Um, you know, I was, uh, I was born in Puerto Rico. I have uh, a father that was, um, that was born in actually in Brazil, uh, of all places, and, and went uh, as a 15-year-old to uh, Puerto Rico and spent his, his, uh, pretty much his life there. He considers himself Puerto Rican. My mother is 100% Puerto Rican. He met her there. Um, I would say that uh, I grew up more Puerto Rican than anything else. Um, I didn't discover my Brazilian roots until I, much, I got into the world of sports, where I finally started to follow, follow soccer and became a huge fan of, of the sport. And it's probably one of the sports that I watch the most now outside of the NBA. Um, so it's, it's pretty ironic how, how the world, you know, sort of flipped for me a bit. Um, you know, and for, for the last, uh, I would say the last two and a half, or almost three years now, actually, uh, I've spent uh, some time working at Microsoft. I lead the uh, advertising division there on the East Coast. Uh, it's a pretty large business, uh, considering where I come from. Um, I come from traditional media. Uh, where I spent uh, previous four years working at BN Sports and before that uh, at ESPN um, International and, and ESPN Deportes in the U.S. Um, and so that was to me what I would consider traditional media. I work in the I'm in the intersection of technology and and sort of advertising now, and it's been interesting for the last couple of years to to really see that sort of play out and and the lens by which I look at advertising now is so much different than the way that I looked at it before. So, um, you know, I'm, uh, uh, it's it's uh, it's an honor for me to to join you all and have a discussion around that because I feel like there's just um, a lot to unpack in the way that we think about it now. And, you know, I know you all have some really great perspective about how you think about it, particularly in the world of sports, but even just in the world of brand and media. So, um, you know, I'm looking forward to, to getting into a, a good discussion. Awesome. Yeah, definitely. I mean, thanks for, for being Caesar. I mean, I'd be remiss if I don't give shout out to Lawrence Roman, who yeah. was the guy who connected us. Yeah. <laughs> like uh, probably a decade ago. Most yeah, like, over ten years. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, shout out to to Roman uh, to Lawrence <laughs> from from uh, La Romana actually the La Romana too. <laughs> so Roman from so, La yeah. Romana. <laughs> Romana. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> interesting guy. I, I I think we need to have him on board as well. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know. Uh, actually, I. You, you come from, as you say, from traditional media, which within media, sports is kind of a separate island, I, I would yeah. say, from, from the outside. Uh, so take us a bit through on how you land on, on ESPN, ESPN Deportes, and, and, and how you, you know, start with media. I mean, was it something that was straight out of college or, or how that came to be? Yeah, you know, I think... Um my path, again, having an unusual upbringing, 
I was raised in, in New Jersey and I was raised by my mother. My father uh, decided that he would never, ever leave the, 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 the country of Puerto Rico. Um, so my mother brought us here when I was three years old and I've spent my, my entire uh, childhood here. Um, so I, was, I would say that I was raised, uh, what sort of drove me and, and created, you know, what, who I am today was sports, right? And that sort of was the thing that I, uh, I followed um, all through, you know, growing up. I played uh, baseball, uh, football and basketball. I ended up playing baseball in college. Um, and, and so when I was going through college, I wasn't thinking about my career and sort of what I was, th what I was going to do. I know that there's, um, when I talk to young men and women now, you know, I'm, I'm 47, so I'm a little bit older, but I think about the way that they look at, you know, their future is very short-sighted, right? It's almost like, well, for the first four years, I want to do this, and then maybe I'll go do that. I wasn't thinking like that. I didn't know what I was going to do. I figured whatever path I, it would lead me is the path that I would go. And so um, my junior year in college, um, uh, actually coming off my sophomore year, I played baseball at Seton Hall University, uh, which was a pretty good university. I mean, if, if you if you have uh, some recollection there, Mo Vaughn uh, was the first baseman right when I was being recruited. Um, he was the first baseman there. Uh, Craig Biggio is a Hall of Famer, played at Seton Hall. Um, so really good baseball program. So I had a good chance to play uh, uh, with some really great talent. And as I was going through um, my sophomore year where I thought I would finally get some, some playing time um, that summer, you know, we, we played quite a bit and I got tendonitis in my shoulder and that became really the, the beginning of the end for me and thinking that I had a career in baseball. Um, and so I, I ended up playing through that year with some injuries, you know, my 88 mile an hour fastball became an 84 mile, 85 mile an hour uh, change up. And, um, and that obviously changed things for me, um, you know, across the board. And so I started to really start to look at, okay, so what's my future look like? Um, and then, you know, I was always a pretty good student. So I had an opportunity to, uh, at the time I was pursuing uh, political science, Ir irony, right? Considering these, these times, I was pursuing political science and I was going to a meeting with my counselor at one point and I saw a sign at the door that said um, there was an internship opportunities to work for several government agencies. Uh, and I was like, well, I thought that would be an interesting thing to, to pursue. So I, um, I, you know, I went in, I said, hey, what's this thing about this government thing? And he's like, yeah, you know, it's a program that we do. It's only a couple of universities are involved. You have to have a 3.7 GPA or higher, et cetera, et cetera. I'm like, all right, well, how do I, how do I get involved here? And so I applied for the program and ironic, I, out of chance, I got selected. I was one of like 20 students through the state of New Jersey that was selected to this program. And lo and behold, I had no idea what I was what I was going for, but it was for the U.S. Customs, um, which is Homeland Security today. Um, U.S. Customs was one of the programs that was involved. And so they reached out. They said, hey, we're interested in your background. Uh, we you know, will make you a contingency offer uh, uh, at the time, but they had to do an extensive background. Right. So it's like any government job. Right. You have to go through this crazy background. So I'm like, OK, fine. I mean, I haven't killed anyone, shot anyone, never been in jail, but OK. Um, but then they start and they actually do an extensive background. Um, and I don't know how deep you want me to get, but but they did this extensive background on me and they went to ask my teachers about me, my coaches, my neighbors, people who I, you know, I didn't even put them on the application, but they went 
and started asking questions about me. So I guess it wasn't so bad that I was able to get through the process. I got hired on and I was um, what they would consider a customs uh, officer. Um, and it was like while I was in school, it was my junior and senior year of college. Um, so I worked from 1 to 9 p.m. and I worked in the airport. So my whole um, life between junior and senior year was working at the airport basically checking people's bags. So if you ever came from the Dominican Republic or, or Germany and you're getting to Newark and there's someone stopping you and says, what's the purpose of your trip? You know, look, let me see a declaration. Are you carrying over $10,000? Are you carrying anything that you're supposed to carry? So that was me. I was one of those people, except I didn't have um, a, approval to carry a gun yet. Um, so it was pretty, so we, it was like four of us spread around, across the airport, different ships. And then we would, the, the, I guess the most interesting thing about that, that job was, because I spoke Spanish, everybody else, uh, for the most part, was was uh, uh, English speaking. I was I was asked to do the uh, Columbia flights at a JFK, so they would fly us in a helicopter from Newark. Some nights, I think it was th Wednesdays and Thursday nights. I forget. It was two nights because at the time Newark didn't have any flights from Columbia. And if you think back to 1993, 94, that was when Columbia was at, at the, the height yeah. of the drug exchange. So we would go out to JFK Airport and I would do all the, the, the searches because we were going to do a full sweep of the plane. So every single person coming off of that plane was going to be searched and interrogated. And that was something that we did. So again, that was probably the funnest thing that I did in that job. But when I, when it was over and they were going to make me a full-time offer, when I graduated college, I was like, this sucks. I don't want to be a glorified officer. This is not what I went to school for. Um, so literally from one day to the next, I quit. I was like, I don't want to do this. Um, and people are like, are you crazy? That's a government job, 20 years, you retire, blah, 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 all this stuff. So I did it. Um, I said, no, I don't want to do that. I, my guidance counselor had always told me, you can come back and be a teacher. I'm like, yeah, that sounds good. I'll be a teacher. So I went back to my school, got my certification to teach. I started teaching uh, um, as a substitute. And then one of my old English teachers uh, who taught ESL um, became really ill and um, he was he was out for an extended period. So they asked me to step in as an extended substitute. So now I'm like grading lessons and doing like the whole thing as a substitute. And then at the end of that year, I realized this sucks. Yeah. Right. So yeah, now I'm like, OK, so now cup, what's next? Being a cup for kids now. So, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So I'm like, OK, now what? Um, so then, you know, at, at the time, again, the, this is when the market was starting to, to boom and things are starting to really uh, pick up in, in, in the U.S. So a lot of my friends that didn't go the, the law enforcement route went the Wall Street route. So I'm like talking to my friends and I'm like, all right, well, how did you get in there? How did you get into Merrill Lynch? How did you get into Smith Barney? How did you do all these, you know, Goldman Sachs? They were like, you know, just, I don't know, just apply and, and see how it works. And I was able to get an interview with, with Solomon Smith Barney at the time. This was in 1997, I guess. And I don't know how I was able to sell my, myself through for a job as a, as a, what they call a portfolio administrator. Um, and I worked my way up. I was basically manning in institutional sales, like mutual funds. So I was like the support group basically for, for that and worked my way up. I mean, I, up, up to uh, 2001, you know, 9-11, I worked in the World Trade Center. Um, I was in the towers when 9-11 when happened and I was working for Smith Barney as a regional vice president. I was a, my team was a group of wholesalers. So I had, you know, worked my way up pretty quickly. 
um, into that world. And um, when 9-11 happened, that's when everything sort of flipped upside down for me. And uh, they relocated our company to Connecticut. I still live in New Jersey. So I was commuting an hour and a half each way. And if you ever driven up 95 uh, when it's snowing, uh, not, a, not a pleasant uh, experience. So again, that brought me to my next influx of where I'm like, okay, I don't want to do this anymore. So now what's next? So uh, I go into, um, I speak to a couple friends and I'm like, you know, what, what's, what's out there, you know? And they're like, you know, well, did this whole thing called digital, you know, digital media, you know, digital is like starting to boom. And so I was like, all right, cool. So I'll go to NYU. Uh, NYU had these certificate courses and I took an NYU course um, uh, in, in digital marketing. Very basic you know, at the time. This was, I guess, 2003, maybe 2002. Um, so I took this course. I met this guy, Julian, who, um, who was the general manager for the Tribune at the time, the Tribune Publishing. And we became really friendly. He became like my mentor and my godfather in this industry. Uh, and he's like, you know, I think you have what it takes. You just have to sell yourself as a more of a seller and a leader than anything else. And, and I think you could make that transition. So I'm like, all right, let's do it. Put me in touch with somebody. Um, so I would say about six months later, I was I was running business development for this for the Tribune in, in Long Island for um, for a short time. Um, and that was really my entry into media that was, and it was in print media, right? So I know it's a long circle to get there, but that's where I started. I started in newspaper print, um, uh, back in 2003 and sort of worked my way through a couple of different organizations. Um, and, and I'll sort of take you to, you know, fast forward a little bit to, to get to the question you asked, which is, um, one of the companies I worked for was, was Televisa Publishing. Um, and so I had the opportunity to work with Televisa, um, both in the U.S. and in Mexico City. Um, and, you know, I was doing licensing for them. So I was managing their uh, licensing deals with um, their news, their publishers, uh, publishing magazines like Vanidades and Cosmopolitan and some of those magazines. But also... Um, I was also in charge of like some of their products like Condorito and I, I think it was Chavo and you know, those, oh, wow. those shows that you may have grown up with in, in the Island. Um, so I was licensing those here in the U S like working with, with either um, uh, retailers or publishers or, or some of those like Hearst was one of my big partners, Rodeo publishing and then ESPN. Um, uh, I was asked to approach them to consider doing a magazine in, in Espanol. Um, and so that's what I did. I, I connected with Lino Garcia, who was their um, their GM at the time, and we built a good relationship. And he was he was on board with doing the magazine, so I was able to secure that deal. And about a year later, after locking that deal, he calls me and said, "Hey, um, we're opening up a position for a director of, of sales for the U.S. and Mexico at the time um, for managing, you know, the TV, the TV sales team, radio, all that stuff." And I'm like, "Well, I've never done TV." He's like, I, "I'm sure you can figure it out, right?" And that was back. I guess that was 2007. Um, so I got the job at ESPN that started my career in sports that started my career in TV. I got out of the print industry, which is good because that was a dying industry. And anyway, um, and sort of, you know, spent eight, 
eight and a half good years at ESPN working in a couple of different areas there. Um, but, but again, it, the one thing that's, that's common here is that I never met, I was never an actual seller, right? I never had to be on the street selling. I had to, I was really taking on the skills that I learned as a leader and those skills as a leader, I didn't learn in the workforce. I learned them on the field, right? I learned them, you know, uh, as a, as a captain of my baseball team in high school, as a sophomore, as a captain of the football team. Right. And so I learned those skills and I didn't really make that connection until much later in my life. And I'm like, well, how did I just become a leader? How did I get into a role where I was, you know, moved into several different positions, leading 40, 50, 60, 80 people. Um, and it was really that. And, um, you know, so I spent good time there. Um, always, looked at ESPN as the, as the pinnacle, right? Like I had reached it. I mean, there was no reason for me to ever leave there. I, I saw myself retiring. I saw my boss going to my retirement party. Um, and then uh, things started to change a little bit where, um, you know, the market wasn't, wasn't, wasn't um, as, as great. I felt that I was starting to hit a snag, which was the first time in my career that I felt that like that movement wasn't moving as fast as I would have wanted to. And there were several options for me to explore at the time, but being sports, if, if you're familiar with them, they, um, they were doing some, some interesting things and acquiring certain rights in, in outside of the U.S. And when they came into the U.S. in 2000, I guess that was 2013, 12, somewhere in that range, um, they started reaching out to me to um, potentially come over and run their, uh, their, their operations, their, basically their entire commercial operations. And I did that. Um, I, I, the first two times that they approached me, I went through the interview process and I turned them down. Um, and then one time I think I had a fight with my boss. I was, you know, feeling pissed off. They happened to call again. The timing was right. They made me the right offer and I left. And, and I, and that was like a, the bold move, right? Because I was already, you know, a couple of kids in, you know, uh, I needed some stability, making sure that, that, you know, ESPN was taking care of me. I had some, you know, uh, stock options and I had a pension and I left all of that to, to try something that was really more entrepreneurial in, in nature. Um, and it wasn't, it, I, it was uh, something that I would say was a really great experience for me because again, going back to the leadership route, but it taught me so much about the market and the industry and the way to look at it. Um, and so I'm really blessed to have had that opportunity. Um, to do that in, in the world of sports. And then, you know, but in, in uh, as it's, it started to, to get closer to the end, I started to see that the business wasn't, they weren't really supporting the business in the U.S. in the right way. And I felt that it was, uh, it, was uh, it was a means to an end. I think they, was, they, they were really coming to a place where they were going to start hitting a lot of walls. Um, and so I, was, I started, you know, pitching myself outside of sports. Um, and I thought that a good opportunity was to connect sports with technology. And to me, that was like really the next wave. So I, I approached certain companies, Facebook, uh, uh, Amazon, and, and Microsoft really were the three that I was really pursuing at the time. And I had an opportunity to go work at Microsoft. Um, I met somebody on a panel that I was on and they, um, we, we connected, you know, hit it off, had a, a process that went through it. And I ended up landing a job um, with Microsoft, not necessarily in the sports side, but in the technology specifically, but it was advertising, right? So I was able to leverage my advertising experience 
bring in bring in this whole world of AI and you know and, and this world that I was not accustomed to at all. Um, but it's been great, and I've been here, like I said, three years, and it's just been a long road. But hopefully, that gave you a good perspective of the the sort of the the wave. I know that was a, a little long winded, but um, I think it gives you some perspective as to where I come from, why I'm here, and then sort of how I look at the world now from from where I sit. No, and, and to, to your point, I mean, usually when we look at what's next in our careers, we have, I think it's very, a very human sensation of, con, of needing control of what yeah. will happen next. But usually the, the, the very successful guys that, that you know, I, I know like you and, and many mm-hmm. others that, you know, you, you don't have linear paths. I mean, right. you, neither myself or Luis or Victor. I mean, you right. actually need to be able to correlate. control. Yeah, correct. And, and that's the idea. The thing is to understand how you perform in certain, uh, under certain circumstances, which yeah. depend, regardless of, of where the environment you will be placed in, it will right. you know, play out the same way. You need to be a leader. You need to be a very yeah. good team manager. You, be an, you need to be a very good strategist and so Strategy, on. Right? Yeah. So that's, yeah. uh, I think, it, you know, the, the, the first part is, 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 is that as a learning to anyone who, who will be listening to this. Mm-hmm. And then, and in, in, you know, the first question that, if, if that popped now and towards the end of, of, your, of your explanation was, usually in sports, the sales part in terms of brand advertising or partnerships or whatever it is, is very, it's very much anchored on the property. Yes. So, in the case of ESPN, you have you had you know very successful shows on TV and mm-hmm. very good verticals elsewhere, and you have very yeah. good rights for 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 you know major sports uh, right. competitions, right? So that's right. kind of the anchor of the of the sales pitch. I mean, you right. are going to be there because there is your potential audience. Yeah. How how much is different if it is towards the way you approach advertising from this? you know, platform that you are selling advertising from? How do I, how do I approach it differently? Yeah. I don't, I honestly, I don't know that I do. I think it's, um, you're still trying to solve um, problems, right? And in, in my mind, when I'm speaking to a CMO in my world now, and I was speaking to a CMO five years ago, the conversation was always around what are the problems that you need to solve for and how can I help you do that? Right. And so I think it's in the context of that, I always figured out how to make that be the, the, the sort of the guiding principle or the, or what I call the North star. Um, so it didn't deviate much. Right. I mean, it wasn't because I knew the NFL or because I knew La Liga or champions league. It was because I understood that if you're Samsung and you're looking to, to understand how to use, how to better leverage and connect your product by leveraging my brand, then it's my job to help you sort of come bring those two together. Um, so it really, I, it, I never took the lens and that's why I realized when it, you know, cause leaving sports was hard for me. Right. Um, you know, I love it. I grew up with it, but what I, what I, when I did some self-reflection, what I, what I realized is that it wasn't so much the sport. It was what really drove me. And the, what I got energy from was the, the having that meeting. And, and I know you do, right. Cause it's, it's, you, you live on this thing is to go secure that meeting and then in that meeting to be able to turn the tide, right? Where someone's telling you, yeah, I don't need your product. And then through that discussion, 
that you can walk out of there and saying, okay, so when are we meeting next? Right. <laughs> um, and that's really what, what drives me. So it, it, it was sports was easy because, you know, you were speaking a, a common language, but even now I don't know a lot of our products. I don't know people. I go into a meeting. I, I just, in fact, I just had a meeting with Samsung, just a couple of, and that's why I bring them up. And, you know, they're, they're asking, you know, one of the things that they, that they, they wanted is like, Hey, we want a global partner. It's going to be you, Facebook or Google. We're like, okay, great. Um, but we want a global partner who's going to bring in all these elements in there. But we want LinkedIn. We want Xbox. We want three, all these assets. And we're like, oh, crap, right? Because that's the one thing that while you might think is an easy thing to do, it's not, right? Because now I'm pulling my partners at LinkedIn. I'm pulling my partners at Xbox. And they all have their own agendas. And, you know, um, to the Azure team, right, thinking about what, Samsung is what is in the relation to all of the others? Are they important to the Azure team? Maybe not, right? And so it's it's a little bit of that. So um, that's the uniqueness of of this role. So those are the things that I'm not an expert in it, but I think the conversation is still the same. I need to solve a problem for this CMO. At it was the SVP, but it's a different problem that I need to solve for, and it doesn't necessarily involve sports. It's still solution solving. Exactly. It's, it's, it's finding the solutions. I mean, I use, uh, now that I get older, I mean, I'm, I'm a bit younger, but that <laughs> I get older, I get, you know, ask a lot to come back to my college class or whatever to yeah, speak yeah. to the new generation. I mean, outside of the typical question that I ask, why are you coming into sports management or whatever? And everyone, you know, wants to close the next big Nike deal mm -hmm. for Cristiano Ronaldo. Yeah. Um, the, the examples that I, I put there is that one, you know, the glamour that you see in the industry, you know, when you are a real worker of it, you don't, you don't get to experience it. No. Um, or at least not that much as you might think. Uh, but the reality is that in, in, from my perspective, when I come from the finance, economics, finance, banking and finance, and being an auditor or, a, or an advisor in big four firms, is that that I apply that that toolkit, that which principle. I yeah. Swore, so yeah, I swore by that I will never ever ever will read, uh, you know, a financial report again because that yeah. was you know the most boring thing ever. But I found myself reading a lot of those throughout the days in order for me to, previous to that meeting with the CMO, identifying which are the pressure points the that they have, yes. the problems that I that they need to 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 fix through sponsorship or whatever yeah. partnership I'm working in, right? Yeah. So, and, and, that's, and, that's, and that's the thing. I mean, and if you ask me, and Luis knows this because I told him many times, me out of college, I, 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 I define myself as an introvert, which mm -hmm. is contradictory to what we're doing here. <laughs> to what we do. I'm the same. <laughs> yeah. But, and, and, and for me, the, the notion of selling something came with that feeling that I'm trying to dupe someone into believing me, in me. So that right. terrifies me. So right. I always landed to the facts, to understanding yeah. your business as a partner and how I can, I can help you. And in many cases, and actually that has happened in my, in my career, we actually sometimes said, you know what, I'm not able to help you because what you're trying to solve is, you know, uh, I'm not. So thanks probably yeah. on the road, we'll find a, a an opportunity to do that. And those yeah. are actually the most close relationships that I build because we're yeah. based on honesty and not trying to right. do, do someone, you know? Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. It's a great point. So, and, and 
now now that you are touching on on you know your current life from as an outsider from sports media mm -hmm. uh I, and, and you actually you you in in the timeline that you described you actually went through all the the major let's say valleys that the industry has has had you know you you saw the dot com burst uh how you know all of a sudden media rights uh, went crazy mm -hmm. high and 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 you know how people still think that that one single media stream you know might might solve things for a media outlet yeah you pick any publication these days and you see even espn you know laying off people you know left and right or yeah. on filling uh positions that they thought that they might need right so what what do you think is the the cause for those symptoms that we see right now in the media landscape? The cause for that, um, I think is, look, I think it's the fact that it's, you're, you're trying to top or compete, right? Because now um, you think about the world. I mean, ESPN, when it was, you know, when I started back into it, it was 2008, it was very simple, right? We didn't compete with NBC Sports. We weren't competing with, you know, the, the Fugles of the world. We weren't competing with all these, the, the, the zone, right? We weren't competing with all of these sports um, platforms that exist today. So it becomes this thing where you have to continuously, right? Now you're overpaying for rights. Now in order to support those rights, now you have to sell a certain amount because there's CFOs in the back that are saying, okay, I'm going to pay $2, million, $2 billion for these rights, but here's how much revenue you need to bring in, right? And so there's this competition of, you know, you're going to need to build a strong sales force that, or a marketing force and all this stuff to go out and do that. But then what happens is when you get into this sort of, you know, you, you come a, a, to a, a point of inflection where, gosh, like, especially now, I mean, we're at a standstill, right? I mean, sports are canceled. The Olympics were canceled for, for NBC. I mean, what happens to all that money? What happens to all those impressions that they were, the brands were looking to, right? So it's all of that. And as the economy, you know, it was, it was in a, I would say in a pretty good state prior to COVID, you know? And so I think what's really driving it is that it's, it's the sense for, you know, you continue to reach for these, 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 uh, um, I was so aspirational sort of goals, right. That, uh, ESPN for years has been going after uh, Sunday, Sunday night football. Um, so that's something that, I mean, it's, it's even going to be more expensive than their NBA rights. Right. And so, you know, how do you pay for that? Right. I mean, it, it's not because you have, two things that are happening. People are cord cutting, right? So you have that happening on one side. Then you have the other side that the, the rights are so, just so, so expensive. People aren't, and, and people aren't consuming. So how do you, how do you hit those metrics, right? If I don't have cable and I'm not paying that crazy subscriber fee to ESPN and Disney, then how are they able go, to, to turn around and, and, and that, the, get their ROI on that investment, right? And so I think that's really what's happening. And it's just their, their opportunity cost was probably not uh, valued in the same way, right? I mean, they weren't expecting something like this. I think they were also leaning quite a bit on the brand, right? So Disney as a whole was, was driving a lot of the sort of as a parent company were supporting it. So, and, and, I, and I speak specifically about ESPN, but I think 
it's the same across the board for NBC, for BN Sports, for all these companies that, you know, are paying the astronomical fees for rights, um, you know, whereas other producers are coming out and just creating content and content that's being, you know, you, you know, user generated, right? And so that doesn't cost anything, right? And so you're trying to look at, right before I left ESPN, I remember they were building out the brand new studio for SportsCenter, right? And they spent millions and millions and millions of dollars in doing this. And I'm like, and I, I was asking myself, I'm like, why are they doing this? Like, especially now, like, it, it's not so much, it's not the studio, it's not, it's the content. Like, I think they, they lost yeah. sight of what they made, what made them really good. And I think it's caused a lot of issues internally. And that was a huge mistake. Um, they thought that that was going to be a game changer and it wasn't. I think it set them back more than, than it needed to. And, and I think it's happening to a, a lot of companies because they're just competing with each other. I actually had one, one thing running around my head because um, if you read the news in the past couple of weeks, you see that actually also properties are struggling to figure out, you know, new, new revenue streams and so on, given the mm -hmm. whole COVID situation, the fact that, yep. you know, franchises can have uh, people attend the stadiums and things like this. And now we, we are recording this when the NBA just announced that they're going to, they're about to start on uh, December, yep. mm -hmm. uh, but it's still up in the air on, on uh, if they're going to have uh, people attend the games. Right. And, uh, and, and we know that they're, you know, sending out surveys and things like that to try to understand what's going to happen. Also, at this particular moment, uh, a new president has been elected mm -hmm. uh, in the United States, so, so changes will happen. So how right. all these things affect uh, the way that platforms or, or, or you, you guys, uh, when you're trying to, you know, I don't want to say forecast, but let's say plan your, your selling <laughs> the, the, yeah. in, in that landscape, how, how, how does that affect, how do, how do you approach that? You know, I would say, fortunately for me, I'm in the what I would call the the search industry is what I work in, right? So it's you know, call it um, it's it's one where despite what's going on, people are always searching, right? People are online a lot more. They're spending more time on their computers. So they're buying more online. So it's our job to ensure that we're helping the brands, you know, connect to you. If you're looking to buy the, you know, the next, you know, LeBron jersey, you know, and you're looking to buy it, you can buy it at Nike.com or you could buy it on the Cleveland Cavaliers site. So it's our job to ensure that we get the brands there front and center for those consumers to see it. Um, so I think it's um, in our world, it might be a little bit different, but I can tell you that if I was, as I reflect back, I'm like, man, if I was still working at BN sports or at ESPN and the challenge to, to get in front of a brand today and create a connection and saying, Hey, there's value for you in investing in, you know, the NBA season next year. I mean, If, if most of your budget is going to on-site or in field activation, which right, you know very well, um, man, like how do, you, how do you sell that through, right? Um, and if you're not pivoting and reinventing yourself in this environment, then, then what are you? And so for me, you know, just to kind of take a step back to, to address your question in the way that we look at it, is that we have to almost think, change the way that we look at our relationships with our clients and our consumers and our brands, right? Like think about 
the relationships we have that are friendships, right? We look at those and we look at them based on value and, you know, how, you know, how people sort of carry themselves, what they're about. Um, and I don't think relationships with brands should be any different, right? Um, we, we've, so we started to think about the way that we approach our partners and our customers is by thinking about um, advertising or connecting with a purpose, right? What is the purpose that, that you have as a brand and how do we help you connect there? Because if there's not, I mean, you started to talk about what's changing, but there's this factor now that there's so many people that distrust brands, right? Like it's just, it's gotten to a point where, um, because if you're now, if you think about society, there's so many different components that are out there. And so people are looking at brands differently, Right. So if you don't have a purpose that you're really pursuing, you could be Nike, but if you don't have a purpose, right, like that's why, you know, the Kaepernick thing was such an, an, a, a big thing because there was a purpose behind it. So people can get behind that. But if you're not and if and you also have to be authentic in the way that you do that. Right. So there's just there's just so many different variables there that go into play that I think it's important for us as publishers to be thinking about the way that we're going to connect with those brands and how we're going to connect them with their consumers is very different now and i think we just have to we're at the center of that and i'm excited by that because i feel like it's it's a conversation that we've always needed to to sort of move along and i think it's being forced right it's like it's been a forcing function and uh and i think the ones that are that are starting to get it are getting ahead of that the ones that are not uh, are gonna stay behind um you know png is a great example here in the u.s they've been they've figured out how to how to market um, from more of a, of, I call it inclusive marketing standpoint, right? That they've been able to think about, you know, not just people, people want to be, um, you know, feel inclusive. They don't just want to be included, right? They want to feel like they're part of it. So there's just a, a different thing. And I feel like we need to, as, as ever, as publishers, we need to think about that, uh, in a different way now. Yeah. I mean, the brands now are forced to really take a stand. And, and yeah. at the same time, you know, we as consumers are, are the ones driving that. that yeah, that. we control the purse. Yeah, we control the purse strings for sure. Um, Cesar, I, I, I have two questions, maybe one yeah. big bigger, since you are in the, in the search, in the search and the things. And, you know, I, I do on a day to day basis a lot around search. Could yeah. you talk a little bit about what you think is the future of search? In which direction are we going? Because I think it's been a couple of years now that it's just status quo. Let's put it that yeah. way. And yeah. you talked about how you guys at Microsoft are trying to connect it with LinkedIn and, and try to do these new things. So could you maybe yeah. just give like a, a few things and then I, and I can ask you the second question. Yeah, I mean, I think it's, you know, what, what, when I came into search, it was, it was traditional. I'm like, okay, so I need to learn about keywords, right? And, you know, that was the, the basis for what search was. And now it's growing to where it's audiences, right? Um, and it's really moving in that direction. And then you have voice search and you have all of these other components that play a role in the way that people consume. And then is that considered when you ask uh, Alexa, you know, hey, um, you know, put this in my Amazon card, is that search, right? Like, what does that look like? And so um, I think the future of search in general is going to be, you know, how you are going to position yourselves with that consumer and creating that audience in the right way. Um, it's not to 
traditional search, at least that way I looked at it prior to coming to Microsoft. It's just very different. Um, we And like I said, I think it's important for um, us as a, as a publisher to think about the way that we're connecting with the audiences, right? And the way that we're, um, we're because there's, you know, there's this whole thing around data that, you know, and, and that could be a whole different discussion, right? I mean, the cookie list world and everything that's happening in, in the future now. Um, and so data becomes sort of the, 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 the way that we build trust, right? And it's like, you know, so for you as a consumer is like, well, what are you willing to give up right to get the content you want and then what are we you know right and so there's like this give and take between you know publisher and consumer and to me that's the search right like it's mm -hmm. it's like the publishers that are going to be able to garner and create uh, a component of like that um yes they we want to own that first first party data but we still want to be able to provide the right level of content mm -hmm. to, to our consumers um it becomes a, a very unique situation for everybody it's quite funny that, that you mentioned data and owning data because i was reading an article a few months back yeah. about an idea related to blockchain with mm -hmm. these microtransactions of actually giving a lot of that power back to the user and yeah. user then being able to give that data, which they want to get charged for. And to me, this is part of like where it could go. I'm not yeah. sure that it's going to be that easy. And blockchain is a, is yeah. a thing of its own, but it yeah. is, it is such a, such a interesting field, especially it's a cookie-less world. When we get rid of third, third party cookies, how do we deliver customized content, yeah. content to, to mm -hmm. consumers? And to me, this is the part that, I feel a lot of brands are not ready for. I think a lot of brands are still in that process of figuring out what is the CPC that they want to actually uh, yeah. optimize and not even thinking about what might right. happen in the next few years. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. I've been on a couple of panels over the last couple of weeks, some, some with some people in the UK, because I feel like the UK is a little bit more ahead of this, you know, because of GDPR and everything that's happened mm. um, in the UK. Uh, it's been interesting to hear perspectives from outside of the US in, in this terms. Um, but yeah, I mean, again, it just becomes something, uh, you know, I wasn't talking about cookie list worlds, you know, four years ago, right? And so it becomes, a, it's a very interesting dynamic, I can tell you. No, definitely. And now to, to geek out a little bit more. Um, <laughs> I, <laughs> no, because I, I, this is this is the type of conversation also that we, with Caesar and so on when, when we met that seems ages ago in, yeah. <laughs> in New York. It's, it's the type of conversations that, that you, you tend to move to, that tend to move you to thinking ahead, right? So yep. every, everything hinges on, on understanding consumers' life journeys. And to be able to place the appropriate engagement opportunities across that daily life of, of our consumers. Uh, a couple of years ago, uh, I think we spoke about it, uh, Cleaner per uh, Perkins, this macro you know, uh, fund and, and, and insights house in, out of Silicon Valley, they, they produced a report in that, that showed that for the first time, Amazon searches surpassed Google searches. Mm -hmm. I, I somewhat, I mean, I haven't seen, I think they haven't uh, published an, uh, a subsequent report yet, but I have, I, I have a hunch that with, within this period now that we're in, you know, confined at home and actually that, that has kind of, you know, exploded, uh, yeah. you know, like, like a thousand. 
because oh, yeah. now it's second nature. As, as it was second nature for people to actually go and you know, Google anything or Bing anything, now it's, 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 it's Amazon. Well, the way I, I see it and, and, and leaning towards the question is, if that is the battleground right now in terms of being able to put yourself in that uh, space, space, right? Mm-hmm. It's the, the the verticalization of these macro companies that you you know have the the Xbox, the LinkedIn, as as V was saying, and any other services. Amazon as well has you know Alexa and all that, yeah. and Google of course has their own. Do you see that as an industry? What we thought of uh, of being the most competitive, and that's another part the regulation <laughs> of this, but uh, as the most competitive, the way we understood that was that the, the most diverse companies and it was the most competitive way of operating. But right. what it seems now is that for any, everything to be thriving from a business perspective, integration, it's kind of, or vertical integration is kind of the way forward because yeah. right now it's about the platform, right? right. I don't know if right. I'm making sense in that. Yeah. Look, I think... I, I do think that it's a, it's an interesting dynamic, right? When you think about the the industry and the way that it's moving, um, I would say that for us and and for us to think about the way that we compete uh, aggressively, right? So Google, um, just to give you perspective, I mean we're a, about an eight billion dollar operation, which is small in, in in terms of what Google brings in, right? Google's probably eighty eighty billion, right? I mean in terms of their search business, so it's like almost you know ten x what what we do, and and that's about right when you think about the share of wallet. Um, they uh, the the challenges that they have, and and by the way, they just reported earnings, right? So we reported earnings. Microsoft just reported earnings, and we had we had a strong quarter. Google had you know about twenty two percent year over year. Facebook, Snapchat, I mean everyone had. I, the irony of of the fact that we're going through these times, and all of all of these brands are reporting positive year over year earnings. What does that tell us, right? I mean, what is that, that, what is the indicator that this is, that this is clicking through? And I find that more and more to your point, as you start to see the consolidation, yes, Google, YouTube, and all these other things are super important, but it's the concentration in the cloud. It's the concentration in the media and advertising business that's really been driving the growth for for some of these companies. So yes, there's verticalization across the the organization that's going to be critical, but it's got to be streamlined and it's got to be somehow interconnected for it to be successful. And I find that that's where we've been um, really, really good um, is to be able to leverage the cloud and leverage teams and, and those types of platforms that have been able to, you know, LinkedIn, you know, continues to be, you know, one that perhaps is like a, you know, they, they, we, they operate on their own, right? We don't, you know, we don't really control the LinkedIn operation, but just the way that they've been able to enhance what we do in terms of the data, right? Because again, if we're talking to the consumer that we were going after, we're talking about that more affluent career oriented, right? That sort of 30, call it 32 plus, um, you know, uh, uh, sort of professional. It's, we have all of that data, right? And so again, the one thing that we pride ourselves in is that we have that data, but we use that data smartly 
and we protect our consumers. We're not going out and selling that data. So I think that's all going to be at the, the, the crux of all of this is like, to your point is like, that is the battleground, but a person who the, the brands that are going to win are the ones that are going to be able to do that, do that effectively and do that in the right way that creates trust and builds trust with, with the consumers. Sorry, I, I was <laughs> muted. Was, uh, there was some yelling here in the background and, and of course I'm, I'm feeling how I'm feeling. <laughs> no, we, we, uh, this whole conversation of platforms is something that is, we've been talking about uh, actually for the past few years and, and mm-hmm. the current situation has accelerated the, mm-hmm. the let's say, the, the topic. Um, I actually don't have any more questions on my list. You want to go pretty much cover cover my my side. So V, yeah, you had a second I'll question. Pick, I'll, I'll pick that. I'll pick yours a lot, V, because actually <laughs> pick it down and and linking it to to sports in because of different conversations that I'm having here in Europe. I mean, the major clubs or properties they you know they crave a big brand, a big partner that they can do different things. And yeah. you know, everyone now is talking about digital transformation and how data will transform the way you can engage with fans and so on. But the reality is that sports specifically or entertainment, entertainment in general is still giving away money, especially to third party platforms, because you, you know, produce, create the content, you push it on Facebook, Facebook makes the killing. I mean, it's, yeah. it's, it's a simple racket, Happening. right? Yeah. 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 So the, the reality is that if the more conversations that I'm having with key stakeholders in the ecosystem, the more convinced that I become, uh, that I come in terms of you know, they don't have a way into, into actually how they will make themselves relevant in this future this world, world. That seeing. Yeah. Because in the end, right now, sports was up until now, you know, a nice add-on, a passion point, if you may, mm-hmm. of fans that you could put in, the, in an ecosystem of content that, you know, yep. in a certain, uh, you know, range or in a central moment, you know, it provides that engagement. Mm-hmm. What everyone thought about the resumption of competition this start across the globe was that sports went, was going to kill it because fans were like be crazy. Home. Yeah, yeah, being home and they were you know craving for content because they were uh, not able to go to the stadiums and all the ratings you know fell flat. Yeah, because we are now in a in a moment in which we are in content overkill. I mean, yeah. we're seeing it. I mean, I think that the ratings that the American election has been getting here in Spain are higher than the ones that the Spanish election got. So, I mean, that's the type of world that we're living in. It's so, unbelievable. Yeah. yeah it's, cra- it's crazy. It's crazy. So, but that's the thing. Now, in, and at least from the sports and entertainment side, which is mostly my day to day, what I tell, you know, clubs or leagues and so on is that you need to make a real concert effort in actually understanding your fan better than what third parties know of, of them yeah. because of the conversation that we're talking about, about the journey, because we need to recognize that the, the main product, so the live game, the two hour broadcast in basketball or the four hour broadcast in baseball is not a sacred or a, you know, a valued anymore. Right. Fans are not consuming that in that way. So you need to find a way to engage with, you know, with them in whatever shape, yeah. form. And that might be, you know, you're talking to fans that are only interested about sneakers and creating content regarding, uh, you know, the sneaker game of the players. Right. You right. know, not a, not a five. Yeah, that's it. Because no, you probably don't need five seconds of, of a game action clip to actually do, be able to do that. Mm-hmm. 
-hmm. And going back to and, and linking it to a conversation that we had with a with a good friend of ours, uh, Chaucer Barnes of, of translation, that that actually it's we were talking on grander terms, but that actually plays through here. You need to stop aiming towards the middle of the belt. You remember that, guys, right? You need to pick a lane and actually try to you know develop yeah. that vertical because if not you you'll be missing out you can't yeah you can't serve everybody yeah that's the reality that's the reality yeah. and i think that that's you know goes back to what we we're saying about the the sports media landscape i mean you are buying rights left left and right and you know the the day has the same 24 hours and the fans have the same uh, you know um, purchasing power so you know yeah you know, I think I, I, I think about it from, from this standpoint, right? I, I spent many years in the multicultural marketing space, right? Which is, you know, I spent so, so many years trying to convince brands of the importance of cultural heritage and language, right? And, and sort of ethnicity and those things that really matter uh, for the multicultural space. And then, you know, and that was an uphill battle. And I, and I would argue that that's still something that still hasn't been really figured out, right? People are still trying to get there. And when I, when I think about my conversations now, it's, it's more centered on, on you know, I, I, I spoke to this a little bit earlier, but around purpose, but I, it's more around equating to inclusive marketing and making, um, creating that inclusivity where people, like I said, they want to, they want inclusion. They don't just want to be included, but it's, it's more than that, right? Like when I think about, when I when I talk to to our partners about inclusive marketing, it's really understanding your customers' values, right? Like what, um, it's it's what value drives them, you know, what is that experience that that customer is looking for, right? And and creating that experience, and I think that um, when the way we were we had um, we were getting a pass, right? Brands were getting a pass because sports were such a big platform, the NBA, the World Cup, the NFL, all these places, they had such a huge platform where they would, you know, sell a, a sponsorship and put a logo somewhere and then get somebody to sit outside the stadium and give out a couple things and that was it. Um, but I think uh, consumers have gotten a little bit more savvy now and they're like, that's not going to do it for me. I think you need to ensure that, you know, what the product that you're building, that it's, you know, it's, it's, it sort of has an experience that it's designed for everyone, right. That it has that inclusive nature to it. Um, and really creating that long lasting value that people are going to connect to. So it's really, if, if you're, if, if it's true for any marketer, right. Or any industry, any, any partner, any, um, in any country, because if you're not doing that today, then I think you start to, to, to start becoming more of the, 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 the past, right? Mm -hmm. Because we're going through this manifestation of, of authenticity and that connection that we need to really bring to the forefront. Um, and it has to feel authentic. It has to match the, the consumer's values, their needs, their wants, right? And it has to create that sense of connection. Um, and, and then that leads to the part that we talked about, which is the trust, right? The consumers trust brands that have, that create that authenticity. So it's going to be interesting. I, I think, um, you know, when we finally do go back to, you know, normal with sports and all of that, I think that, look, I do think sports will come back, right? I, I think it's, it's, if it didn't, I mean, it'd be, I'd be shocked if, if that wasn't the case, right? I think sports sports in general will come back. I mean, the NBA did a really solid job doing what they did. Um, hopefully, you know, this, this next season will be even better. Um, 
you know, it was, it was, it was, you know, LeBron, you know, winning a title, you know, after Kobe's death and everything that sort of happened in LA, the, the Dodgers winning the world series, all of these things coming together. I think people are going to have energy around it, but now what's going to be different is that people are going to judge from a different lens. Right. So it's not just going to be like, Hey, I'm outside Dodger stadium and you know, peanuts are standing out there. What's the connection? Why am I, why should I care about peanuts? Right. What is the, how are they being built or, or chocolate bars? Right. I mean, if you even think about the history of, of chocolate bars and the way that chocolate is created in, in Africa, right? The fact that it's so many people are, are sort of, you have the, it's one of the poorest countries, right? And they're basically, you know, have 16-year-olds yeah. pr- producing the cocoa, right? So even from that standpoint, right? People, when people start to realize all these things, they're going to be like, yeah, I'm not buying your Snickers bars or, you know, whatever it is. Like, I think there has to, there has to be a connection. And I think that's where we're going to get to because the next generation is so aware. I have a 16-year-old that has so much awareness for the things that I never even thought about, right? Um, and I think that's going to start to affect the way that we uh, connect with, with, our, with our brands as well. So I, it's going to be an interesting next couple of years. And hopefully, you know, if we can ever have the Olympics again or the World Cups and all these things are going to happen, um, it's going to be, it's going to make for, for some pretty exciting times. For sure. I, I, I definitely, I really firmly agree with that. Uh, to your point, to, to Ryder's point, it's, it's, it's about not just your purpose uh, driven, you know, ethos or whatever it's it, or mm-hmm. in your business strategy. It, it, it has to be the combination of both and you just yep. picking your lane and that will automatically create that, that yeah. uh, authenticity it will bring that authenticity out. Authenticity, and yeah. Something that we were, we were discussing in previous uh, conversations as well was the fact that, uh, there's also a trend now how consumers, especially young consumers, are, are being identifying even more and, and being more loyal to more niche brands, you know, like mm-hmm. brands that are just operating in very small, very focused markets. And, and that's a trend. That's what we will see happening. happening. Yeah. How these big properties now adapt to, to that. I think to you, to, as, as you said, I, I was also very, very gladly surprised with, with how the NBA performed. And how the NBA picked their lane and, and were very yeah. outspoken. They they, they followed it. Yeah. They followed it. They they you know they picked their 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 message up around the social justice issues. Uh, and, mm-hmm. and naturally, into I think eighty percent African American league. So uh, it, it made sense. It felt it, sense. it belonged. It, it felt authentic. And, yes, exactly. Yeah, and, and so if you're a consumer of that product, right? Then you know you sort of your you feel good or you're delighted by the fact that they went out of their way to ensure that that customer experience for you um, was something that connected with them and their values and things like that. So I think that's what I think it's going to be the future of, of you know, you, you call it sports marketing, just the future of advertising as a whole. Um, I think it's going in that direction and the brands that, that do that better are the ones that are that are going to really, to me, are going to stand out because it doesn't matter if you're Nike anymore, right? It could be like, look at the brands that come out of nowhere, like Supreme and right. Like they just, they come out of left field. They, just this little idea and it becomes this, you know, global brand. Um, and so I think that's the future. Yeah, and that's, that's important on, on the data part and the understanding on, on the audiences that you have at your best, uh, because that's the more you are able to identify and segment in the proper, way you know in the traditional you know demos and things like that is is how you can offer brands 
uh, a more you know efficient platform for their for their advertising and that's yeah. that's the atomization of marketing and advertising is going to be incredible in terms of how segmented you will be talking and and yeah. as as platforms or middlemen or whatever it is we we also need to understand that that the conversations that uh, a sports league will have with a fast moving fast moving consumer goods is not going to be the same conversation that you as the leader of the advertising operation in Microsoft mm -hmm. will have, but the underlying uh, understanding on how they need to engage will be the same. Correct. That's exactly so, right. Yeah. And it's, That's exactly it's, it's, right. It'll be interesting. Yeah. Yeah. So, so V, okay. you, had, you had any other question? No, I find this whole chat very interesting because I'm, I'm not in the sales business. I'm from the brand side. So I, Gotcha. When I try to spenders. make this, yeah, I'm a spender. <laughs> so every time that I that I make a decision as to where do I put my money and think about what is the whole package offering me for the money that I want to put in. Yeah. So especially for B2B, I mean, we talk about, you know, Bing plus LinkedIn. If it's Google, you have the display. And and, yeah. and we talk about this this fight on, on many fronts, which for me is very interesting because it is all about data. I talked about in previous shows a lot that I'm a big believer in if you don't make your decisions based on data, you're missing the trick. Yeah. And for me, that's a massive, massive part of where we're going. So much so that in the future, the guys that you talk to, the guys that I did talk to, Luis talks to, may not have anything to do with sports and will only look at what the data is the telling data. them. Yeah. They will just go, yeah, I don't care what LeBron is doing. The CTR is not right. We need to go to somebody else that gives me a better CTR. And yep. to me, it's both exciting and scary at the same time mm -hmm. because <laughs> it's you take away a little bit, you take all of the emotion out of it and you base everything on data. So it has to be a mix, but I know it's going to be quite more heavy in terms of data where we're going. That's for sure. Yeah, Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I feel like we, we this this conversation can go on for hours, right? Because there's so many ways we can take it, right? Like, I mean, I, I'm interested yeah. in talking to you, V, and, and even in, in Munich, because that's a market that I was, um, uh, I've been working with my partner, my uh, mm -hmm. my chief of staff actually sits out of the Munich office. Okay, um, I mean, so, I'm, I'm, I'm quite connected with both Microsoft and LinkedIn guys <laughs> in Munich, so <laughs> yeah, yeah, there yeah. might be some commonalities anyway. Yeah, yeah, all of those guys there, um, and so it's it's a market that I'm I'm getting more and more keen on, you know, as as it prog as it progresses. So we certainly got to have a, a you know maybe a, what we call a cocktail hour and, and have some other chat, maybe yeah, more more for fluid. Sure. Uh, sure. But yeah, I mean, I, I hope that that this was this was helpful and insightful for for all of you and and for your viewers in terms of um, uh, or listeners, as as I would call it, we're, we're podcasting now, right? Um, but yeah, I mean, it's always interesting for me, and and I enjoy these these types of discussions, particularly going in so many different paths, right? And and that's what I always enjoy. I mean, the the unknown for me is always uh, is always cool. Is is not knowing where the conversation is going to end up, end up, but it always seems to to connect. No, definitely, definitely. On the I wanted to talk to you now that now, <laughs> now that that we are coming to an end, and, and for people to know, I mean, Caesar is the first person that saw the three-paragraph scribble about what the connect might be. Yeah, that was a few years ago. Uh, I consider him a, a good, trusted friend and mentor as well. Yeah. Uh, and you know, I'm very thankful for all the advice and uh, for you being with us here, sharing some game and some knowledge. So definitely we'll repeat that. 
yeah, soon enough. Absolutely. And hopefully we can do a live session in New York. I mean, I'm really looking forward to going back to the city, man. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I haven't been in 10 years either. So what can I say? Oh, wow. And I grew, and I grew up there. That's, uh, <laughs> that's, that's amazing. Uh, yeah. yeah. That's great. So, so it's, uh, it's it's yeah. No, thank you, thank you, Luis. Uh, and and you know, we, I, I'm definitely. That's I've been to Munich. I've been to Barcelona. I know you're in Valencia now, either, but uh, I haven't been to Prague. Um, I don't know if the lady would you know would be so keen on me going out there to visit, but you know, <laughs> maybe maybe there's a business trip there on the on the horizon. Sure. <laughs> it's <laughs> a fun town. It's a fun town. Beautiful, beautiful place to visit. Yeah, for I, sure. I've heard. No, Cesar, really, thank you very much uh, for, for your time today with us and, and, and really enlightening us with your experience and, and, and all the things that you're doing right now. Yeah, no, thank uh, you. It's a pleasure. Very rich, and, and, and I, I really second what Ryder said. I know he talks about, about you all the time. And, yeah. and I, that was one of the points that I wanted to jump into about mentorships and all these things, uh, but we don't have enough time for it. For yeah. It. And like you said, we can talk for hours for many different I know. <laughs> <laughs> definitely. Part two. Yeah, TBD. Definitely. For sure. Or for TBC. Sure. <laughs> TBC, for sure. So thank you yeah. very much, Cesar. And uh, catch you in the next one. You got it. Thank Tomorrow. you, guys. This episode is brought to you, as always, by The Connect. The Connect is Raida Luis Baez. Follow the Intersection podcast in your favorite podcasting platform. Leave us a review and share it with a friend. This will really help us be found by more of you interested in the topics of sports marketing and deal making. Until the next one.